This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Xero. As a listener of this podcast, you are probably keen on getting industry insights, staying ahead of leading edge technology, and boosting your network. Well, I have some good news for you. This June at ZeroCon 2019, Xero will bring together hundreds of tech-savvy, future-minded professionals just like yourself from across the Americas and the entire globe. Come join Blake, myself, and this collaborative community in action June 18th and 19th in San Diego. To receive a special discounted ticket to ZeroCon 2019 in San Diego, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.com slash zero. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.com forward slash X-E-R-O-C-O-N. Book your ZeroCon ticket today and we'll see you in San Diego. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. We got some more reviews, David. Three more. Three more. That's good. That's good. Yeah. NAS77Y said, forget the rest. This is the podcast on cloud accounting. You should be tuned into weekly. Blake and David are a perfect duo. Apart from being entertaining, they are also experts in the accounting and accounting software vertical. The updates they share are well-researched and articulated. Every accountant, bookkeeper, and business owner should be listening to this regular show so they can stay informed and make smarter business decisions around accounting and cloud software. And we got a review from uh, the world-famous Brent Forbush, CPA. Great content, on point, five stars. Blake and David do a great job of keeping abreast of all the changes in the profession and even more importantly, making sure to call out the parts of the profession need to change to stay ahead. With the ever-changing technology landscape, they help make sure we are evaluating our process and technology stack to ensure we use the best of breed. Thanks for being a voice. And finally, we've got Jimmy Joette, who said, outstanding five stars. I can't say enough about the job Blake and David do in discussing new trends, software updates, news articles, and everything relevant to the industry. I get excited every time I see a new podcast because it means I'm about to learn more news relevant to our industry. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you, Jimmy. And thanks, Brent. And thanks, NAS77Y. Really appreciate those reviews. Yeah, this is great. So you know who isn't getting very good reviews this week? It's into it. <laughs> did you see the article in Inc. Magazine? I did see that. Um, and the headline in the article is, changes are coming to QuickBooks subscriptions, comma, again, and small business owners aren't happy. When you tweeted this out, mm-hmm. the day before, I actually went and did a follow me home. And I went to a, I drove to Phoenix and I went to a small business, a t-shirt uh, sign printing business. Right. And mm-hmm. they're fairly, fairly big and chatting about their business, how they're doing things. You know, they talked about QuickBooks and unbated for me, they brought up the QBO list limits and how they're going to exceed the, the chart of accounts ones. And there's like almost like eye rolling about it. Right. They mm-hmm. were at, really my takeaway is, yes, it feels like we're in a closet in a vacuum. You and I talking about these list limits. Right. And then, you know, the accountants and bookkeepers are talking about them on social media and all that. But it's obviously based on me doing that follow home to small business this week. And then this article that this is really being chatted about, not just in our little cloud accounting podcast circles. This is like yeah. really being discussed because this is Inc. Magazine. Yep, Inc. Magazine. And the price increase is pretty substantial if you do go over the limits on the chart of accounts. So for those who haven't been following the story, starting April 10th, Intuit is imposing new usage limits on existing tiered plans. So if you're a current customer, you might outgrow your plan sooner than expected. For example, customers currently on the $60 per month plan, which is $720 per year, might have to move to a $1,200 per year plan. That's QuickBooks Online Advanced, which would be a 66% price increase. And that's only because you have 
more than 250 accounts in your chart of accounts or more than 40 classes and locations. And so this article uh, features business owners, both small and, and slightly larger, a $100,000 business in New York, a $1 million annual revenue business in Boulder, talking about how they switched from desktop to online and now they're, now they're upset. And, and they're, not, they're upset about being forced into price increases wh- while also they don't perceive that there has been a lot of, of development in the product to, for new features and benefits and talked about how QuickBooks Online has gone down two or three times in the last year. Yeah, I, I think this just validates the commentary that you and I had a couple of weeks ago talking about how it's not really wise to increase prices when you haven't actually delivered new features. Well, yeah, and then it's it's the, I think the limits themselves, like, they just feel low. They're kind of arbitrary, aren't they? Right? Like, wh- why why would you want to pay more for a product just because you have more charts of accounts? Right? That's like, it's not a it's not a feature, it's not like I'm getting advanced inventory management or something, which people would be happy to pay more for, right? Yeah, like if somebody is extra anal or wants to, um, you know, or over organize things, like you, yeah. you get, it's it's like almost me. like a punishment. <laughs> yeah, and I know we've talked about this in the past couple episodes. You know, even myself, I I use a lot of classes, and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of rethinking that now because this could catch up. And, and so the interesting thing about this, like that business I I talked to, they were paying a lot more for, uh, I think they're using a Sage desktop product that they were, um, that they migrated from about mm-hmm. 18 months, 14 to 18 months ago to QuickBooks online and then add on apps, right. To, to, they kind of moved to that ecosystem. Right. It's not that they're really upset about the price, but they just almost had that like eye rolling about it because when it's all said and done, it's still going to be cheaper per year than they were paying before for um their sage product but it just i think it's the it's the sting of it and then kind of just eye rolling about it like are you kidding me like because our chart of accounts hits 251 they're not mad it's just they're kind of like eye rolling like this is unbelievable like that's the limit i i I suspect that eventually this will change like there's a lot of chat about this um outside of obviously outside of our circles because this is now real small business owners are talking about this with each other so speaking of Intuit and QuickBooks, there's a new QuickBooks Live test going on. Number two is 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 up and running, and you and I were able to see the pricing page. It's pretty easy to get around the uh, the cookies that prevent you from seeing it because you can just use an incognito window, right? So I took a look at the new pricing, and it's pretty similar to the last last pricing. Although Claudella is gone, David, that was that was the first thing I noticed as well. I was a little heartbroken. <laughs> say say goodbye to Claudel. Uh, she has been replaced in test number two by David, who is also a very experienced bookkeeper. He's been doing it for 17 years. And the big difference is that the price has now doubled from 200 to $400 per month. But one of the major things somebody pointed out is the other test here is the services offered and the scope is different. Mm-hmm. Before it was a little, uh, hey, some setup help, and you know we'll do some categorization for you. And now it's almost like a full blown bookkeeping service. It is yeah. at the other end of the, of the other other end of the pendulum is swung the other way. And obviously, into it's going to test because if you do a test, you got to go a little extreme, or you're not going to learn anything. Well, should I should I go through the scope of services? You know them by heart. Well, I took screenshots, so I've got them listed out oh, here. That'll work. Yeah, um, perfect. So. Uh, first, your QuickBooks Live Bookkeeper will customize your setup, which means setting up your books and tailoring the product to fit your business. Importing historical data like customer and vendor lists is included in this. 
Then they will categorize and reconcile transactions, which means categorizing expenses, income, customers, and checks. They will also reconcile accounts and transactions to make sure they match. Third is provide monthly insights on your business. That includes creating customized reports catered to your particular business, reviewing business reports to see how you're doing from month to month. They will also help ensure your books are accurate at month end, fix incorrectly posted transactions so your books are correct, find any missing figures to keep your books balanced. And then finally, uh, they will close your books on time, generate accurate year-end reports for your business when it's time to file, walk through a year-end checklist with you, and even ensure you have a seamless handoff to your tax accountant. So yes, David, I think that this is a rather full-service type bookkeeping offering. And at $400 a month, it might be a little, still a little bit underpriced, if you ask me. Well, I, I think it depends on, yes, as a, from a bookkeeper's perspective, if you have a bookkeeping firm, it may be that $400 feels underpriced. But I think if you're a small business owner, right, and you just need cash basis bookkeeping, it may be overpriced. Because mm-hmm. I, I think I saw, I, I swear I saw a Google ad on one of my searches this week that said bookkeeping, $89 a month. Yeah. So well, there's all sorts know, of there's all sorts of low end bookkeeping services out there, and and then when you actually click through and you get to the site or you talk to somebody, you find out it's going to be much more expensive than that. Yeah, as soon as you add in, yeah, anything else. Well, unless they're they, using unless they're using offshore labor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they, but they, yeah, they kind of as soon as you add in, oh, and I need a payroll service, and I need uh, this app, and I need an approval process, and it does start to add up. So uh, as we discussed last week, the the big news is that they've hired. 10 bookkeepers in Boise and are moving forward with an, a closed beta of QuickBooks Live with various business owners. So it's not a test anymore. It's actually a, a beta. The public pricing is still in test mode, I guess. I wonder, I'm, what I'm really curious to know is, and, and this, this is what disappointed me when I listened to some of the uh, public interviews that the QuickBooks Live folks gave this past week or two, and the blog post is, what are these QuickBooks Live bookkeepers getting paid? Because that's going to have a huge impact on, like if this service actually goes live and becomes big, and this is how pro-advisors are now making money and that they're they're working for QuickBooks Live as bookkeepers on their platform. We need to know what they're getting paid to know if it's going to be good for them or not. And nobody asked that question. So I really would like to know that the answer to that. And I, my guess is it's not going to be much more than the TurboTax live people, which is something like 20 bucks an hour. And is that public information out there? Like, has that been? No, no, uh, no. We don't I mean, know. what about the TurboTax live people? Um, is that something? That, that is something. Uh, really? Well, so there was a blog post uh, that Craig Smalley wrote. Uh, he talked about how he applied for TurboTax live just to see what it was from an employee standpoint. Okay. And he said that he was told the pay rate was somewhere around that. Obviously it depends on your individual situation, but that's what they're telling people. So the, the other thing that bothers me about all of this, or the, the big question I have in my mind is that, um, you know, Rich Priest was on another podcast this week, uh, talking about answering questions from pro advisors, right. Talking about, uh, what, what, what this really is. Is it a, is it competing, with pro advisors. And of course he says, no, it's not designed to compete with pro advisors. We're actually going to use or invite pro advisors to participate in this program. So, uh, you know, we're not competing with you. You're going to be able to use our platform and join our platform to provide bookkeeping services to clients. And this way you'll get more clients, right? 
And to me, that's that's sort of like Uber saying to taxi drivers, yeah, we don't compete with taxis because you have the opportunity to sign up with us and drive for Uber. <laughs> but everybody knows that the way Uber works is that uh, it hasn't been exactly the best thing for taxi drivers. Because when you have anybody able to join Uber and drive for Uber, and it's a contract relationship and all that, you're not getting the benefits. Uh, prices are getting lower, uh, hourly wages are being lowered. Like platforms benefit the companies building the platforms primarily, not the service providers that are currently being disrupted by those platforms. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, kind of the history of platforms is that, right? And and then it's a double-edged sword because I think even people criticize, it was, it's been the politics now, like, oh, Amazon runs the platform, they need to be broken up, or Apple runs the platform, they're taking 30% of every developer's take, but developers are making money off of the app store and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, I think there's a big bell curve of bookkeepers out there. Right. And I, know, I see this in the Facebook post. Like, you mean, there's bookkeepers that are providing exceptional services. They have their own bookkeeping firm. They've done the marketing. They've done the research. They've, they have clients. And then you'll see on the other end, you just see people, they'll just post onto Facebook how do I get clients for my bookkeeping business? Or I just opened right. a bookkeeping business and they almost like aren't doing any work. If that makes any sense, like they're not putting in the effort to create their firm and to go out and do work. And maybe that's a good fit. Like for those people that, okay, I just want to do bookkeeping, but I don't want to have to find the clients. I don't want to have to spin up my own website. I don't want to have to do any of these things. I just want to become a bookkeeper and I'll just do it for QuickBooks Live. And so maybe yeah, there's a set of the population this is a good fit for. Yeah, I would say that this is going to be great for business owners if it's done right, because they'll have access to bookkeeping help for you know, directly in QuickBooks Online for much less than they would pay otherwise. And it's going to be great for bookkeepers who aren't really that good at running a business. And because now they have access to as much work as they want, and it's, it's all in a platform that's easy for them to work in. Who it's not good for are the entrepreneurial bookkeepers, accountants who have created their own firms or, or businesses and brands because does anyone really think that QuickBooks is going to be driving people wanting bookkeeping services to the ProAdvisor directory once this thing is up and running? No. It's like we talked uh, we talked about what happened with GoDaddy with the do it with me and the do it for me uh, services, right? Uh, Ned from Spritz wrote that awesome post talking about what happened there. And there was a total incentive for GoDaddy to drive people to its own platform rather than to the third-party providers because they made way more money on the do it with me, the the platform play. So it, once this goes live, I wouldn't expect for ProAdvisors to be getting a lot of leads through the ProAdvisor directory anymore. So they'll have to figure out how to get them from elsewhere. You know, everybody talks about advising and I've always talked about going niche and I've always thought like if you, if you, if you do uh, niche correctly, you're going to have conversations with small business owners way before they even think about buying QuickBooks, right? Or way before they go to the find a pro advisor site. And so it's just going to be, if you're an entrepreneurial bookkeeper or accountant, you're just going to have to do things differently because mm -hmm. uh, a lead just falling in your lap because somebody went to a find pro advisor site may not be there. Right. And you're just going to like every pe people who want to be lazy are going to have a place in this world. Right. They could in people who want to work really hard in their firm and grow it. There's a place for them, too. You're just going to have to be a little bit uh, a little bit more hustle and innovative, I think. Yeah. So I have an article that kind of ties into that conversation a little bit. Let's hear it. 
Kathy Iconis wrote an article on her blog site, uh, QBO Chat, and it's how to start a virtual bookkeeping business. Hmm. And I think this is a good post for, I know I just referenced those people that are just on Facebook. How do I start a bookkeeping practice? I just quit my job, right? They're on that end of the spectrum. And Kathy really goes into everything from like step one. I started with $1,000, my initial funding, right? How I got my business name, how I structured my company, um, the tools you need, the hardware, the storage, um, how to pick a package to build your practice on and how to do training. And so I think this is just a good article for all those people that are at square one. They don't know what to do next. It's just a really good how, how, do, how do I article. Reading through this, it really solidifies in my mind how difficult it is to go actually go into business for yourself. And a lot of people don't think about that when they say, I'm going to go start my own accounting firm or I'm going to start my own bookkeeping practice. And there's a lot that goes into it from you know, forming your LLC to getting set up on your technology stack to building out pricing packages and then your, your tech stack for actually delivering the services. It's hard. So that's what like a QuickBooks Live is going to solve for people who just don't have it in them or don't have the uh, the time and resources to, to go do that, right? That way they can go work for themselves and, and everything's taken care of. Yeah, that's a good point. Because if I wanted to start a car service tomorrow, I don't even know legally if I'm allowed to, right? Never mind. Never mind if I have to buy a car and all this other, like, there's all this stuff that would have to happen and insurance, et cetera. I got to brand it. I got to find customers or I install the Uber app and I become a driver. And I don't, yeah. I, don't I have no clue how long that takes. I'm going to say like in 48 hours, I'm driving for Uber. I'm just, but it's Probably. a complete, it, you're right. Like it's a complete difference from, Hey, here's a bunch of work you have to do. If you, and this is not even like, she doesn't even get into like, Oh, you got to get customers, right? Like right. you want to maintain, this is just like spinning it up. Okay, great. Now you have it. Now you got to actually start making some money and getting customers. Yeah. It's tough to set up your tech stack, right? And figure out how you're going to use, you know, are you going to use QPO? Are you going to use build.com, hub.com, concisely, all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, to actually go out and get those customers, that's where a lot of people <laughs> get stuck yep. because they're not salespeople, right? That's not why you went into accounting is to do sales most of the time. Yeah, yeah, I think so, you're the you're you're one of the exceptions because you've always I think early on even when you had your bookkeeping practice you always described yourself as like I'm a marketing bookkeeper or something like that, right? Yeah, well, it's funny because I never thought I would be a good a good at marketing, and then it was when I you know started my own practice that I found I really enjoyed it that I liked blocking and I liked getting out there online, and I, I wouldn't call myself a sales guy because you know I can't I, I don't like doing calls all day with prospective clients. I get a little tired from that, but I love the, the online marketing stuff. That is really fun. And that, you know, most bookkeepers, uh, probably that's not the thing they're, they're interested in. If they were, they'd be doing marketing. What's next? What should we talk about next? I, I, I think that uh, leaking sensitive files via box accounts is an interesting one. Oh yeah, let's talk about that. All right, David. So speaking of your tech stack and, and how you're going to store documents, right? Like this is an important thing. Uh, one thing that you might do when you're starting a bookkeeping practice or an accounting firm is set up your online storage, your cloud storage, Dropbox or Box or Google Drive or OneDrive, right? Well, an article popped up on ZDNet this past week talking about how there are, there are lots of companies that use Box.com, uh, which is a very, very secure file storage system, but they are, because they're not configuring it correctly, they may be accidentally exposing internal files, sensitive documents, and proprietary tech. Here's how they're doing this, is Box has this ability where you can create what's called a vanity URL for a file. So instead of it just being a random string of digits and numbers uh, that, that links to the file, you could say something like, 
you know, my hyphen social hyphen security hyphen number. Right. <laughs> well, hopefully and, you wouldn't do that. You would just be like, yeah. David's cool download <laughs> or something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or like passport or something like that. Right. You okay. could customize the URL. And so what, what people have been doing at some big companies like Apple is they've been creating inter- uh, vanity URLs for internal documents. And then they've been making those documents public because, you know, they don't want people to have to log in to view them. Uh, and then what that means, though, is that if you're a hacker, you can just basically search the web for vanity URLs, like use dictionary attacks, um, searching uh, on the box domain for these files, and then you can find them that way. Right? Okay, so it's, so- it's like having it's like having an unlisted phone number. Like people can still find you because they can just like dial all the numbers and find you. So, so somebody who's a little enterprising and smart, they could be like uh, box.com slash newest Apple iPhone 11. Yeah. App, uh, 11 version of the iPhone. And they just keep yes. searching and eventually you just, just find some docs is basically what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and it's a cautionary tale, right? That whenever you set up, um, whenever you're using cloud-based storage, uh, you know, that are where, where files are permissioned and accessible via URLs, you really want to make sure that you've set up your policies so that that sort of thing can't happen, that your staff out of convenience, don't accidentally expose documents by using a vanity URL on a document that is, you know, public, that shouldn't be public, that sort of thing. So that's the security lesson for the week. Wow. So it's kind of funny. So it's that carelessness of companies, right? not knowing they're doing these things. So here's one. And I know we've talked about this before, not so much with companies, but we, I think we talked about how like, Hey, the IRS was just cutting people refund checks for over a million. They, they don't, they don't check, right. Unless it's over. How much was that again? $10 million um, or $5 million. Two, if the refund check is under $2 million, it doesn't go through human review. Although I imagine that's probably changed now. Okay. Given what happened. So there's an article that came out. It was on CNBC. Um, a scammer just sent fake invoices to Google and Facebook, which is a scam people have doing for years and years and years. And yeah. he got a hundred million dollars from them. How, wait, over what time period? I mean, uh, he, uh, two, in 2016, it looks like 2000, 2013, between 2013 and 2015. Wow. So he was just sending fake invoices to these companies and they were paying them? Yeah, he created a fake company that posed as another company. I mean, it's a total scam. But like on the Facebook and the Google side of things, do they not have any accounts payable controls? Like nobody's sanity checking this stuff. Um, And I even know, I'm pretty sure there's apps that are off the shelf that will validate um, companies before you pay them. Yeah. Well, this seems like a perfect application for artificial intelligence, right? Having some sort of AI review all the documents and look for inconsistencies and and create a risk profile for every single invoice. But I guess, you know, that's not a priority for Facebook. I mean, that's the problem when you have so much money floating around, right? Your internal controls uh, go go a little lax, right? Because you're not too worried about it. I mean, isn't a hundred million dollars like a rounding error for Facebook? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the sheer number is just amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a two-year period, so that's it's basically amazing. a million bucks a week he's pulling out of those those companies. Half a million dollars each wow. a week if you if you start averaging this out for a two-year period. 
That well, and, is, you know, this is this is not just a scam that that big businesses fall for. You know, medium sized small businesses even fall for this stuff too. So we got to be vigilant. Yeah, and this is where I think you know there's pro- you have to have some approval processes around things, right? And it could be right. a bill.com type situation where it's it's really there's there's a, an app involved, right? To that you do the approval through there, but it could be as simple as a Google checklist, right? Or a process or anything like that to where two people have to both say, okay, it's time to hit send on that bill payment before they just get paid. Right. And this is another area where like human, the humans are the weakest part of this uh, chain in, in, in the internal controls. Because a lot of times when you, even when you have that, people will just go in and they'll see a bunch of bills for themselves to approve. And they, they won't re- really take the time to look at them. They'll just hit approve, 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 approve. Right. I had this happen with clients all the time. They just were too lazy to approve. Or to actually look at the documents. And so then the, everything would get paid. And then we'd find out later that, oh, I didn't actually want to pay that. Right. What am I supposed to do? I, I had an approval process in place. You're the one who didn't actually look at the document. So I don't know what to, what to do in that case. In <laughs> some, some level, I think these guys were geniuses. In another level, they're morons because Facebook recovered a bulk of the funds after it was reported. So right. did they, like... If you're going to steal $50 million from a company, like, don't you do a better job of hiding it? Like, how did Facebook recover this money? <laughs> That's beyond me. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little shocked by it. But yeah, it's uh, people um, being quick, being careless, right? It's the same thing with that box article, being at this paying invoices that you didn't take time to make sure it was real. Um, it, it comes back to bite you. Everybody has to be careful mm-hmm. out there. Uh, so on a totally different subject, I found... a. Uh, do you, do you ever read the Zapier blog, David? I love their blog. I have it's never so read it actually. Oh, so I don't know when they started doing this, but they hired they must have hired some really good writers because they're putting out great content like every week. Uh, you know, really helpful stuff that's not about Zapier but ties into it. Like it's a perfect example of content marketing. Uh, so this one that I saw is from February 11th. It's called the best screen recording software in 2019. And it's a roundup of all the screen capture software that's out there for small businesses. So like, like Loom what, and stuff like that. Is that when you... Yeah, talk? Camtasia, okay. ScreenFlow, right? Like if you want to create like a demo video of your product, or if you want to create a training video for your clients, like these are the apps to use. Okay. And they, they, so they pick the top 10 and then they say, which is the best to use for each use case? So, you know, do I want to quickly share videos or do I want to live stream webinars or do I want to create high production recordings, right? And you can just go through the list and find the one that's perfect for you. Um, so I highly recommend anyone looking to, to create that kind of content. Take a look at this. Uh, I am a big fan of Camtasia. I've been using that recently to create some, uh, on-demand demo videos for Flowcast that we're going to be putting up on our website so that people can actually see the product, right. Without having to, uh, skip book a live demo. Um, and I can do really cool things like I can, uh, highlight, stuff on the screen. I can add text. I can create arrows. And I can even show, you know, a, a, a thumbnail of the person running the demo that's captured from their webcam. It's really cool. Uh, so that's the, the number one app on their list. But there's a lot of other ones that are really good. I don't know if you've used any of these, David. So I have not, but I've heard a lot about things like Loom. Um, I, I think it's really popular with people, but, but you want to, maybe you're documenting your processes. And instead of you typing, here's how you run payroll in QuickBooks. 
instead of you documenting the click by click steps to do that, you could actually, uh, a lot of people, the popular way to do is Loom. And then people just yep. record the video. And then somebody, you you have a new employee, you just tell them to watch that video. And that's how they go do the process. And then uh, I know, I think even, I think Mike McAllowitz uh, talked about this in his book, Clockwork, where, and then you just put that person who's, who's ever using the video as the person responsible for shooting a new video as soon as the process changes. And it's mm-hmm. a quick way to keep your processes up to date. And I think a, a lot of people have used Loom to do that. But I have not, actually, of this list, I've heard of Camtasia, but in Loom, that's it. So the other eight, I'll have to go in and take a peek at. So um, I also use a, a tool called um, Snagit. Snagit's a, like a, another tool made by the people who make Camtasia, and it's for quick uh, screen grabs they don't have the same editing features but you know lets you grab your screen and send it to somebody um this was one of the ways that i really differentiated myself as a bookkeeper with my clients is when they had a complex question they wanted to know how to do something instead of sending them an email and telling them how to do it or having to call them on the phone and walk them through it i would i would just record a quick video showing them exactly how to do it and I would send that to them and they freaked out. They loved it because then they could go back and watch the video anytime. So if you have a firm teaching your staff how to do this, it's it's great for, like you said, David, documenting internal processes, but it's also a really cool way to record personal videos for clients whenever they have questions about how to do things. And Loom is a great example of that. And it's how, super how, easy. How formal like do you get with these? Well, not formal at all. I'd be like, oh, you know, hey, David, uh, you know, I'm just responding to your email asking how do you deal with uh, a uh, loan repayment on payroll, right? You gave an employee in advance and now you want to withhold that from their paycheck. So I'm going to go into Gusto here and you can see that I click on the employee and then I go down to deductions and I create it this way. I'm going to say loan repayment. It's going to be after tax, right? Um, And then that way they know how to do it every time. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, 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 so it's okay to use video professionally done or really informal that you can scale it and utilize in your firm. That's the lesson here. Really, really powerful. And I think it goes to that whole idea of, of, you know, this is how we as service providers can differentiate ourselves in a world in which QuickBooks Live is coming. We need to figure out ways to be luxury service providers, uh, not just people helping do compliance activities because that, that, that whole like compliance stuff, you know, it's going to, the price is going to go down on that. We aren't going to be want to want to be doing that. But if we can be the person who does these really cool videos for our clients, that will set us apart and people want to pay for that. That's all I got this week. Cool. I just had one more article um, titled, I mean, it has a very good uh, clickbait title. Tech companies should stop pretending AI won't destroy jobs. And this oh. is in the, this is in the MIT Technology Review. Mm-hmm. Great, and great magazine. The it's a little bit of a long read. Um, the takeaway I got from it is yes, there's this disagreement between AI companies, right? At some level, they refuse to acknowledge that maybe people are going to lose jobs, or they have this other argument, which is like this: ah, we'll just supplement those people with a universal basic income. Like there's this almost like convenient argument that's out there. But I think the secret thing in this guy's article that is really the scary thing, and he doesn't actually, he just provides the data, but he doesn't provide the conclusion. So this is me applying my own conclusion to his article. And he really compares about AI in China. 
and how China has a chance to win the whole AI game. For one thing, they have more data. Mm-hmm. And then on the other thing, they have 2x the amount of people working on AI stuff. And ultimately, you need data. Who has the most data is going to win AI. And the ironic thing, this whole thing is, what if like AI eliminates all the tech jobs in the US too? Like it's not just the mundane jobs, customer service level jobs. Like what if a bunch of engineers that are working on AI are completely displaced because China wins? And I think that's the the really interesting thing here from a from a number standpoint. Right now it's 50-50 chance, right, going forward in the future that we stay on top of the technology revolution with AI. We as in the wait, United States. Wait, what's the so the 50-50 number, that's whether or not we win the AI race or China wins it? Yes. Right now it, it's so so he basically has three points. First, China has a huge army of young people coming into AI. Mm-hmm. It's basically doubled over the last decade. Um, second, they just have more data. It's just there's more data. There's more people. There's more data being thrown around in the cloud, right? They have access to more data. I guess I just don't understand that link. Like, why is it that having more data makes you more likely to develop an AI faster? Like, that's like saying that. Well, I, I have it, more bricks, so I'm more likely to build a house. It's right? not that you can build it. It's not that the more data builds it faster. It just build, makes your AI more robust. And the more robust it is, it can, le- it can learn faster on its own. Like if, 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 you, mm-hmm. if you don't have data, how, do you, how does your AI work or, or, or learn? I don't know. I don't know anything about actually how AI gets built. <laughs> like, 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 like if nobody went to Amazon and bought deodorant, Amazon would not have any data to be able to say people who bought this deodorant also bought this toothbrush. Right. They can do that because they have data. Regardless of how genius their AI scientists could have been to put together the deodorant and the toothbrush, but if they don't have the data, they can't say that. And that's what his argument is, is you really have to have the, this tremendous amounts of data. And then a star argument really is the whole Chinese companies, um, specifically AI companies, have kind of passed what he calls the copycat phase. 15 years ago, the startup scene in China was just copying every product that was made in the U.S., and now they've matured to a point where they're just building their own cool stuff. And they're, they're not really copying, knocking off whatever product is successful in America next. Well, I really like what he says at the end. He, he talks about those who deny that AI has any downside, which is most of the tech community, right? Most people who are developing AI don't want to admit that there is a likelihood that it will automate a significant percentage of the work that we're doing now. And that it's even if, even if new jobs are created, it's going to be hugely disruptive to the people who lose their jobs to AIs. Uh, and he says at the end, quote, these changes are coming and we need to tell the truth and the whole truth. We need to find the jobs that AI can't do and train people to do them. We need to reinvent education. These will be the best of times and the worst of times. If we act rationally and quickly, we can bask in what's best rather than wallow in what's worst. I think that's great. I just don't have any confidence that at least the United States will figure out how to reinvent education quickly enough to catch up with the change that is coming. I think, I think we're in for a huge social disruption once AI gets good. Right? I mean, right now we're in the world of sort of like crappy AI, right? Like, you know, Siri on your iOS device can't really do all that much. Uh, you have to be very explicit. But as soon as we pass 
across that barrier where the AI gets good enough to answer most of our requests to to be able to do a lot of basic work without a ton of guidance, which we're, we're almost there. How many millions of truck drivers do we have in this country? We've been talking about self-driving trucks for a long time. It will eventually happen. It'll get there. I don't think we know, right? Like what the world's going to look like 50 years from now, right? Or even going back 30 years from now, you and I have jobs that didn't exist. Even when we were in high school, they didn't exist. There was no such thing as a web programmer, right? Like Mm -hmm. these things did not exist. And if you really look back at the history of like, there was a time in the United States when 90% of every single person in the country was farming. And now hardly anybody farms. And we didn't, there wasn't this chaos and breakdown and, and, collapse of society like i I think like it was was pretty disruptive there was a lot of i mean uh i i i'd have to go back and remember my u.s history classes but the industrial revolution was not exactly a peaceful time to be alive yeah it was ugly it was hard yeah i agree yeah the cities were disgusting you know uh that's where we got all these cholera epidemics that, that's what that's what we need to realize is that we are on on the brink of you've talked about this before david the fourth industrial revolution right mm-hmm. where like you said we're going to go from um we went from a primarily agrarian economy to an industrial economy and now we're going from an industrial economy to whatever is next and i think that's and, the the proper take on this is i don't think any of us really know what's next no uh, but we're definitely not prepared for it that's for sure I mean, you look at the state of education and I don't know, maybe it's changed a little bit. I, my son is only four, so I haven't seen what public education looks like uh, in the elementary school setting just quite yet. I will. And I'm, but I'm betting it's not that much different than the education that I received. I went to public schools in California and it was not designed uh, in any way to prepare me for this economy that we're in now. I had to I've spent more time teaching myself how to do stuff than I ever learned in school, right? Well, I, I think in the new economy, there's going to, you know, my kids want to be YouTube stars. There's everybody and their brother wants to be a podcaster now. Like this is the new jobs, Instagram star, podcaster, YouTube star. That's, that'll be the new jobs. And you and but I- Not are, everybody well. can be a, not everybody can be an Instagram uh, model. That's the problem. There just aren't enough. <laughs> That's where we have to go into <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect. I think on that note, uh, how if people really want to find out about podcasting or uh, want to connect with us about our podcast, what's probably the best way? Well, they can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. And how about you, David? Um, I'm at David Leary. And you can also, uh, we are, Cloud Accounting Podcast is now on all the socials. Um, we're not on Instagram, but we are on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. So you find us, like us. We'd love that. Yeah, stay in touch and uh, write us a review on iTunes and we will read it on our uh, upcoming episodes. We really appreciate that. It's a great way uh, to help other people discover the podcast because that's how Apple decides whether or not to show the Cloud Accounting Podcast to somebody who might be interested in it. So really appreciate that. Thank you, everybody who wrote reviews. And we hope that they keep coming. Awesome. See everybody later. Thanks, David. Bye.